BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. I am Mark Henretti and you are listening to This Week in Skating. Welcome to our podcast. I'm Daphne. And I'm Gina. And this is This Week in Skating. Today we are joined by someone whose voice we've been hearing a lot this season, Mark Hanready. For those of you who don't know, Mark is a former competitive ice dancer who represented the United Kingdom with Christina Chitwood. They were two-time British medalists and competed at the 2009 European Championships and the 2010 World Championships. Mark has appeared on numerous seasons of ITV's Dancing on Ice and will be on the new season this coming January, his 10th season. Many know Mark as a Eurosport commentator. This season, he joined Ted Barton to do commentary for the Junior Grand Prix series. This weekend, he was doing some commentary for the ISU for Skate Canada. So we want to welcome Mark to This Week in Skating. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Mark. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all that you do for skating as well. I am um, sure you have noticed I am keeping my eyes on what you put out there, but this is a huge help to me when I'm researching for the commentary work as well. Yeah, and I want to ask you about the researching that you do. So stay tuned for that because I okay. want to know <laughs> all about that. <laughs> So I feel like to start off this interview, we should go way back, Mark. How did you actually start <laughs> skating yourself? Um, well, I am a kind of cliched story for starting the sport in the UK because it was thanks to Torval and Dean when they returned to compete in Olympics in 1994. So I was born after their win in Sarajevo at the 84 Olympics. But when they returned to compete 10 years later, I, as a nine-year-old, like so many around the country, was exposed to, to them and made aware of of the legends that they are and that consequently encouraged me to pester my parents relentlessly until perhaps a year later uh, I went as um, I think a birthday party or a birthday present and then on the back of that I mean I, I really <laughs> before I'd even started I knew that I wanted to try and be like Carvel Dean and when I started though in Scotland ice dance wasn't taught really um, even though there have been lots of 
successful ice dancers who come from Scotland, we've all really started as single skaters and then gone elsewhere to pursue our ice dance career. So I competed in singles to junior level. Um, I did get a was kind of shortlisted for a junior Grand Prix assignment, but had injuries and eventually switched to ice dance. And then I think I switched to ice dance when I was about 18, 19 and managed to make to a Worlds and Europeans. But as so many of you well known appreciate the expense and the politics of the sport just became too overwhelming and the end of my competitive uh, experience. How was the transition from singles to ice dance for you? Um, although it was ice dance that brought me into the sport, like so many others, when I then became a single skater, I used to you know, kind of look down on the ice dancers. Oh, if you're a failed single skater, you become an ice dancer. And yet, in hindsight, I probably should have made that transition a little bit earlier. It's difficult. It's a really interesting talking point, I suppose, particularly at present. But because I didn't skate often, didn't have a chance to skate often, it's hard to get that early development specialization. And I started at the age of maybe 10. I didn't skate you know, more than two or three times a week. So I, although I could land up to triple loops, I, I wasn't technically as proficient as I needed to be at the age that I was at. Um, so switching to ice dance was probably a good move. It's just a shame it maybe didn't happen earlier. And initially I thought, oh my goodness, this is um, going to be so easy in terms of the elements. But I do remember being so much more exhausted physically to do a free dance than I was to do a free program. And I suppose as with anything, to be the best, you know, to be the best anything is incredibly difficult. So I have mutual and equal respect for, for all the disciplines. Well, how did you get into the commentary side um, after your skating was over? Well, my commentary experience was really born from kind of horrible uh, happenstance that took place when I competed at the European Championships. And, you know, for so many skaters to compete at an ISU Senior Championships is a big deal. And it's something that you've spent years working towards. And I remember when we competed, my partner and I at that event, the commentator made some really factually incorrect comments and some really unkind comments. And I just remember as soon as I come off the ice, my phone was going and somebody was telling me about, oh, I can't believe that so-and-so has said this about you guys. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so horrible. And I remember I was much more bullshit then than I am now for sure. And I remember going up to the commentary booth because oh. at that time it was on site. <laughs> and I just went up and said, I'd love to join you guys. And I didn't <laughs> reference back to what they'd said, but I just articulated my point to correct them um, within it. And, you know, that was that at the European Championships. Then we went on, different things happened. And then during uh, Dancing on Ice, the commentator for Dancing on Ice was also working within Eurosport and it just came up a conversation. And again, had more courage perhaps then. I don't <laughs> feel like I'm as, as forthright now as I was then, but I just said, you know, I don't always think your commentators are as well-researched as they could be. So if you ever need somebody. <laughs> and it wasn't really because I wanted <laughs> to commentate necessarily. It's because I didn't want anybody to experience what I experienced. And yeah, that was what kind of, I think it was that which gave me the courage to go up and try and speak up and, and want to represent the hard work that everybody does to compete at that level. Yeah, you know, I love um, you and Ted with your positivity that you bring. Um, that's one 
thing that I enjoy so much listening to the both of you for the Junior Grand Prix is you find even in, you know, the worst skate that someone could have, you find something positive to say and to mention about that skater. And I want to commend you on that because it's not always easy to find something positive to say when someone's not having a good day, you know? And so you guys really, you know, are great at that. And so I wanted to say that when you just said about how you got started in um, commentating because, you know, it was a negative comment that someone made about you that made you want to go and, you know, share your thoughts on it. So. And I'm really glad and I'm grateful that that you feel that and I mean Ted's just a glorious human being and and we had so (laughs) much fun but I think you know we've been there we've done that and it's easy to be an armchair spectator it's easy to pick fault and I think you know misery loves company people are quite happy to you know step in and and take a stab at somebody and I think that's the, the easy shot and you know maybe it is all born from that experience that I had when I had somebody take a shot at me but, you know, I just see, you know, what validity is there in slating somebody? Yes, of course, I, I could potentially be more objective. I could potentially, you know, pick up on some of the mistakes perhaps more than I do. But I, I just think, you know, praise where praise is due and less, mm-hmm. you know, more, more love, less hate, peeps. <laughs> <laughs> when I started iStands.com and we started doing event coverage, part of it, was because I wanted to provide a place where the athletes could come and read about themselves and not be afraid. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to have a place, a safe place, where they could read constructive criticism without fear of being, of feeling like they were being attacked. And while that may seem less intense than some other forms of skating media, for me, I can sleep at night knowing that I'm doing what I think is the right thing. Well, and it's interesting, like, because iStance.com has so much warmth and compassion and positivity felt, you know, it's, it's, it's mutual. The, the positivity that you put out is, is shared in appreciation for from the athletes. And I think that's something that I'm really aware of with Ted and what he's done on the Junior Grand Prix is that skaters, coaches, parents all have you know empathy and appreciation for what he is doing and you know just we all want the same thing we all want skating to be celebrated enjoyed appreciated and increased in its popularity so you know the more we can do that the better I think you know it's like clickbait you know if you if you're negative or you're uh, um, controversial it will grab people in but it might not keep people so maybe a slower burn but you know let's just hope that our sport continues to grow with good vibes. Definitely. So how did it come about that you got to join Ted on the Junior Grand Prix? Well, I, I, I'm not really 100% sure. I had, because I'm doing Dancing on Ice, which I've done for a billion years, and that starts tomorrow, actually. The oh. training for that starts tomorrow. <laughs> and that runs through to March. And so I had been asked to do some events for Eurosport sporadically um, when others weren't necessarily available. And then I don't quite know why or how, but I was asked to then do the World Championships in Stockholm. Again, I think because somebody wasn't available and that seemed to go down really pretty well online and the issue picked up on that. 
And so then I was maybe encouraged to do a little bit more for them in last year's Grand Prix series. But because of Dancing and Ice, I couldn't do uh, work, I couldn't do any of the ISU Championship events. And it was just so frustrating for me because, you know, it's wonderful for me, for me to be able to watch the best skaters in the world and to be able to sit and enjoy and appreciate and soak it in. As a parent of two young children, <laughs> I can't justify that. So, you know, just a joy for me. But I was frustrated that I couldn't do it because I had this other wonderful job. And so I'd mentioned to Selena at the ISU, you know, I, if you ever needed me to help out with the junior Grand Prix, I can do that. And I'll just need to know in advance as much as possible for the seniors so that I can try and sort it out with Dancing and Ice. Um, and, and then on the back of that, they just came back and said, you know, if you'd like to help Ted out, I was like, okay. <laughs> um and ted <laughs> ted is just ted's my new bestie so. um how much preparation here's my question about the preparation goes into commentating for an event um especially for the junior grand prix with so many athletes and so many new athletes that you know uh, fans don't necessarily know who they are well, like I've got it here, like I'm getting ready now for France next week already. I've just finished Canada and, you know, what, I came off the microphone an hour or so ago and I'm already taking notes for next week. The juniors was hard because the numbers were so huge. So, you know, in Skate Canada, there were 40 competitors, 42, 40 competed after the withdrawals. But the junior Grand Prix, there would be like 100 plus, 120, 100, way over 100. And so managing to take the necessary prep time was a challenge especially because I couldn't rely on you know back history that I know from the likes of Shoma you know who we've seen today um so yeah it takes a long time and I get a bit stressed sometimes like you know oh my gosh I've got to take like so many notes to you know make sure I represent the skates as well enough but again it all kind of harks back to that that experience that I had I I think you know for the voice of the skaters and and the coaches and the choreographers and the sport gotta try and do the best job that I can um so I'll start like I started Skate Canada prep a few weeks ago I'm just starting to take notes then um the challenge is just I you know I I'm a father I'm a husband <laughs> I've got jobs <laughs> so as much as I like now it'll be a scramble um but yeah, as much as I possibly can. Yeah, you don't have any researchers doing it for you. Like, you know, NBC has researchers for Tara yeah. and Johnny. You're really? doing all your... Yes, yes, they do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They have people to do it for them? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they pull everything together for them. So probably, Mark, though, skating, being a skater yourself, has helped you be a bit organized when you're trying to juggle being a you know a performer a parent a husband and then globetrotting and everything else that you're doing in the sport now with commentating yeah i mean i i gosh i may bite off more than i can chew we're also like renovating property where i do too much like i definitely do too much and i just think well you know anything's possible just get your head down and sometimes my wife doesn't uh, appreciate how much i take on rather than just you know step back and smell the flowers sometimes but um it's just inherent in me it's kind of always been I've, I come from a family that's really academic um and workaholics which I don't always think is a good thing I'm not promoting that as necessarily a good thing but it's <laughs> kind of the way I am so some competitions you're physically on site and some competitions you're not which one 
is easier or better? I mean, I'm assuming that being on site would be better, but I'm sure there are challenges to both. Yeah. And for all the commentary that I have done until this year, it had only ever been seniors and it had only ever been done in a studio environment away, like miles and miles away from the venue. This year, I went to five of the six uh, Junior Grand Prix and I was on site. And that was just from a research perspective, it was amazing because in the rink, wherever Ted and I were based or on some occasions I was on my own, I would have to, you know, it was long, long events and I would run to get, you know, coffee to keep my energy levels up or keep warm in some instances. And there would be the opportunity to, to check in with a skater and be like, oh my goodness, you know, if there's anything you want me to say, please let me know. Or just to perhaps um, connect with the skaters and get them to be aware that, you know, we're on their side we're part of the experience for them. It's almost even for the juniors a bit like the media training that they'll get as they go to become Olympians, you know, that's mm -hmm. for, for some of the strongest nations, they'll get media training. And so maybe that in itself with, with what Ted and the team have created on the Junior Grand Prix is just an early insight into communication with, with the media. Um, so from that perspective, being on site, definitely better. Uh, from a personal perspective, I've got, my two babies, my wife, um, to be closer to home would be good. The only thing is that I can't do the seniors remotely from home. I did one event on the juniors from my dining room. That was amazing. Uh, but they use satellites and all sorts of clever technology that dictates that I have to be four hours away from my home uh, in a studio. So I am still away from home, closer to home, uh, but not on site. Were you on site for Skate Canada? Or are you home? No, I was not. I'm in, I'm in England in the UK. Okay. I'm four hours away from where we live um, <laughs> to be near the studio. The, the blessing to that, I suppose, whilst it's not optimal for family life, is that like I can just furiously take more and more notes because I'm not going to help out with anything at home. <laughs> Can't help out with anything. Mark, what does it mean to you for the Grand Prix to have been awarded to Sheffield? Oh, it's it's amazing for, for Sheffield. It's amazing for British skating. It's, it's wonderful for Lila and Lewis in particular, <laughs> who, you know, will be, I'm sure, you know, incredible on location. I think, it, it, I know that the British Ice Skating Association is really keen to push for ISU senior championships like Worlds and Europeans again. And so at short notice, they you know, made their bed and they've had to work incredibly hard at very short notice to make it work and the the venue that it's in is the place that I coach at it's the rink that I coach oh. at the rink that I trained at and it's a very small arena um with not much seating there is a, a, a massive arena a stone's throw away but because of the short notice they weren't able to use that because it was booked up um so I think the British Ice Skating Association are going to run at a huge expense to be able to put this event on but the foresight being that they'll be able to make a success of this to be able to secure a world championship event so um, exciting times but we just still don't know because of the satellites if I can be even though I work there all the time I might not be able to commentate from the event I might still be like four hours away but everything crossed that they can logistically make that work and I can be on site as well yeah we'll keep our fingers crossed for you that you can be on site for that yes definitely definitely <laughs> you <laughs> you, sh you should be it's your I know, like I, like I I trained there so I've been in that rank for 16 years so. Yeah. How special that is to think of having that event 
be yeah. at your rink. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. so cool. How many people does it hold? Does that rink hold? Can't remember off the top of my head the exact numbers because I know that I heard you know discussions about it because that was one of the issues initially with the commentary. It wasn't about satellites. It was just about fitting people in. And I think, you know, we're talking like 2000 at most. Okay. And I think even with that, because of officials and, and various different bits and bobs, I don't think they can utilize all the seating that is available. So it will be intimate. Uh, like Skate America was at the Skating Club of Boston. Yes. <laughs> we were both at Skate America a couple of weeks ago or two weeks ago, and it only held about 2000 people. Okay. But they got creative. We had food trucks outside to get um, dinner and they, yeah, they were pretty creative with what they were able to pull off. Well, I heard, you know, great audiences there. Like I heard, Mm -hmm. you know, lots of people remarking upon the warmth of the audience there. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all really excited to just have live skating back fully back. Um, after a few years of things being so up and down and you didn't, really know from one minute to the next or Mm -hmm. one week to the next do we mask at this arena do we not mask at this arena are there going to be spectators (laughs) or not going to be spectators (laughs) yeah i'm kind of glad that it feels like we're at a different point now and i'm happy not only for myself but for the skaters that they get to have a crowd there because that was one of the things that they commented on in the press conference was just the amazingness of being there with an audience yes yes i you know when i was searching furiously for quotes i, I did hear a, a number of the skaters just referencing the fact that the audience can help the audience they're a part of it they're a part of mm-hmm. it too and you know i've talked about the need to represent the skaters the coaches and everybody involved with the creation of the product but ultimately our sport will thrive on interest and audience participation and viewership so well done those guys yeah. Well, one other question I wanted to ask you too was um, with the fact that we had one of the Junior Grand Prix being canceled and then we had to shuffle rosters around, there were like, what, 40 or 45 skaters in like the ladies event for like the last two um, events. And I want to know how you and Ted managed to do your countless hours of commentary. I mean, we, our podcasts are only like, I mean, 50 minutes, 45 minutes, and, and that's fine. It's just me talking to Daphne. But you guys were going for hours and hours. How did you manage to do that? And how did you keep yourself going? Oh, gosh. I can't remember what the, the was it 48? But I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah, it was yeah huge, it's huge crazy. Summer. And it was like Europeans. It's like a flight that you'd have like at a large ISU championship. Yeah, I mean, it was just insane. And then there were, you know, it was it was epic. But I mean, you know, like I think Ted and I were similar insofar as we love skating. We love promoting the sport. And I think, I mean, Ted's done it on his own for so many years. I mean, I did a world championships on my own and that was pretty hard going. But um you know, this was ridiculously long days, but we just bounced off each other. We joked about it. Um, I drank a lot of coffee and, you know, I was conscious also that Ted's done an amazing job for seven seasons already. I was privileged and fortunate enough to be asked to come and help him. So, you know, I was just really conscious that I needed to keep the energy up and 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 help him out too. So we just, we had fun. It was so much fun. <laughs> we were, I mean, it was 
can't say it was hard because how can it be hard when you're having fun and you're doing something that you love but it was long it was pretty long <laughs> i don't drink that often but at the end of the day and um, the like the officials get their vouchers for their drinks and their meals and stuff and i, I never drink wine but there'd be a glass of wine at the end of the day and after that glass of wine i'd be like <laughs> like exhausted <and> bleeding. <laughs> I think a day that long does create this delirious effect in your head. You're just kind of like, I've just been doing this for so long. I'm going to ride the wave of deliriousness to get through well, it. I don't know. I didn't listen to it all back for sure. I didn't have time to listen to that length of competition back. But um, <laughs> yeah, when we would give, actually, that was one of the things at the end of the long day is you have to create a highlight package just to reference the, um, you know, the top three in each discipline or the, the results and what's happened. And that seemed, I think I was on location actually more than Ted the way it worked out, or for whatever reason, I seemed to be doing that more. And on the very first Grand Prix in Courchevel, when we were together, I, that was my first time doing that. I'd never done a highlight package before, I just commentated on the event. And Ted, who is just a fabulous human, I was, you know, he was helping me out. I was asking for advice and he was happy to help. And he said, you know, just make sure the energy's up uh, for the highlight package. Um, and so, at the end of the long day I just had that from the very first day of working with him make sure your energy's up but at the end of 12 hours of talking on commentary and exhaustion I would be like wow really great <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah I, I feel like you at events you have to have the adrenaline your adrenaline just keeps pumping I mean I know we go to events and it's all day th yeah. things and and you're just you're sleep deprived and if it's on a different time zone your body clock is all thrown but it's just about you know just keep going and you just pure adrenaline that you're running on so I'm assuming that's what you and Ted did as well, well is just run on energy and adrenaline you know it's interesting you mentioned that because the adrenaline I had it less so I didn't feel it so much at this competition at Skate Canada maybe because I've done so many through the summer but I live in constant fear of making a mistake and saying something wrong. So it's constantly like, <sighs> so speaking of the JDP, what were your impressions? What stood out to you? Were there any performances or skaters that stood out to you this year? I mean, I think it's easy to immediately on the top of my head, you think of the likes of Maoshimada, Hana Yoshida, um, Hannah Lin, Yi Kwan, Nadia Bashinska, Peter Beaumont, you know, the, the, the most successful of the skaters. And there, there was some wonderful skating. And I, I really did enjoy, even from the first event, I just remember being so impressed by the dance macabre from Hannah Lin and Yi Kwan. I thought that was just like, wow. Um, and I think the junior ice dance competition was, was really well battled, lots of really good teams. Oh gosh. Maraskova Mrazek, the speed they have, just mind-blowing speed. Um, but also, whilst those are the most notably successful and you know, good quality of skaters, also for me, good to be able to see you know, the new skaters. And it's something that Ted is very passionate about as well. But for me, being on site and being able to appreciate new skating nations is something special. And getting the chance to chat to some of them. There was a, a Brazilian younger, young woman um, competing. And she's a trans athlete and she, um, off the top of my head, gosh, I can't remember her name. Please forgive me. I've had a long day of commentary already. Um, a delightful human who <laughs> is taught by her adopted father 
and just an amazing story. She's a roller skater, but she travels, I think, 400 kilometers to the rink to train. She has to go to the Center of Excellence in Bergamo to get ice time as well. Just amazing stories of, of skaters that struggle to get ice time. And you, you cannot really compare all of these athletes because they come from such different perspectives with such different resources. And I did a bit of choreography um, in Japan for a couple of weeks. And I remember when I was there being told about the lengths that parents would go to to facilitate their child skating. And I remember being told that skaters will arrive sometimes at three or four in the morning to train before school. You know, we shouldn't judge, but you can judge that as you could um, also just acknowledge that they have access to more training time than the skaters from the less developed countries. You know, Egyptian skater, first time represented at an ISU competition. Um, you know, so just interesting to see lots of representation from lots of different uh, backgrounds, experiences and resources. And yeah, it was, it was quite eye-opening and I, I'm glad that Ted and I were able to be the voice for that and to try to kind of level the playing field a little bit more for the audience and the viewers watching. Resources in skating seem to be a big point, I guess you, you could say. And that always leads me to connect it with pe- the, the athletes' goals can be different as well. Like it, for some, winning the gold medal is their mm-hmm. goal. But for others, they have smaller benchmarks. Like they might be 15th at one competition and have a certain score. But their goal is to be 12th at a competition. Like there are different goals that we don't see. Their goal is you know, going it's out not, there. Their yeah. goal is, is getting through the performance. Yeah. And nobody goes out there wanting to do badly. Nobody goes out there thinking. No, right. Of course not. So I've seen sometimes when a skater, I think, rightly or wrongly or knowingly or unknowingly, makes mistakes almost because they need help. Because I've seen that happen. I've seen a skater almost sabotage their own performance because they're crying out for some support and some help. And that's a whole other issue. But, you know, nobody goes out there wanting to do badly. And with that in mind, yeah. that's a, a really good fuel to help commentate and I just you know when I, it's like I say that that European championships of me somebody picked on us somebody picked on us I'm like what like I'm I'm, I'm so <laughs> poor I am so exhausted I am so you know my whole life is, is is revolving around getting to this level of competition you're picking on me like what is that and you know our sport is a, you know it's subjective it's judged there are lots of aspects from our sport which are not nice, which are dark and pretty hideous. Mm-hmm. And I have endured and been <laughs> at the mercy of some of them. And that's needs to be dealt with and, and it needs to be eradicated, ideally. But, you know, let's celebrate the absolute glorious joy of the sport and the beauty of the sport and young humans pushing themselves to achieve greatness. And whatever their greatness may be. Yeah. And Axel, to somebody, to, you know, to an to somebody that started in, in their later years and Axel is Olympic level greatness for them. Mm-hmm. Right. You can you can mm-hmm. you can hear and sense my passion about it. It's, it's important. Yeah. <laughs> what I try to look at when I'm looking at pictures to post or I'm trying to figure out how to put together an article, I want to tell more than just the top three store the stories of the top three because mm-hmm. It doesn't matter to me if the person 
is first or last or in between because there's something to be enjoyed from all the performances. And sometimes the most joy on a skater's face is not from the team or skater who's first, but for the team or skater that's like seventh because they've achieved something or they just love being out there. And I love that. Like that makes me happy seeing them happy doing what they love. It's funny you mentioned that. I mean, on the back of today's work that I've done, uh, Ryuchi Kihara, he's just gloriously joyful. That guy just exudes joy and I adore watching him, not for the skating (laughs) always, just for his buoyant energy. But um, my memory is of one of the most, one of the most memorable performances that I have witnessed was at the Oberstdorf, like the adult world championships. And I was there as a coach and I watched a skater compete and she skated to the music Spiegel im Spiegel. Um, and it was yeah. a, a performance dedicated to her mother who had been killed. And she wasn't a strong skater by any stretch, couldn't land an axle. Um, and I'll never forget that. And that was special. Yeah. I've seen so many performances like that. Sometimes because I know a backstory of what someone is facing. And you know that just going out there and doing what they're doing is taking a lot out of them, but it's so important for them to do it. You know, you just don't know what anyone is facing. That's so true. And I mean, you, you mentioned know. that and I immediately think of the Ukrainian team that performed at the World Championships. Mm-hmm. We did know that yeah. story. You know, yes. it, was, it was very obvious what, mm-hmm. what they were going through. But everybody has their own story. You know, everybody has their own story and we're not able as you said about asking you the research, it, you're not able to, to find out everybody's story. And so that's why it's just so important to try, not always possible, not always achievable, but to be respectful of what everybody delivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Agreeing. respect, I think that word mm-hmm. yes. could go a long way, not only you know in the media, but to fans who are watching the sport as well, to be respectful. Because even if you're not a fan of the skater that you're watching or you're not enjoying the performance, at least have respect for the work, the hours that has gone into it, and the art form that you're watching. You know, I'm shy of wanting to be controversial or bring up controversial topics, but you've just mentioned the fans and, you know, there's a lot of talk about the skaters that aren't competing. And there's a lot of comparison with what's on the ISU events at the moment. And, and I just have no time for those that that put out such torrid negativity and vitriol. And I think anybody that spouts the vitriol that I have seen on some forums isn't happy in themselves. I think if you're outputting the vitriol that I have seen on some of the, you know, the, the streams, can't really be comfy in your own skin and happy in your own skin. Somebody that's at peace with the world isn't going to be antagonistic against others. So I am sad for them that they may feel that that's, you know, a a right choice of, you know, to attack the skaters and say it's not as good as if so-and-so was here. And so I'm I'm, I'm fortunate at a place in my life where I think, oh, that's a shame. That's a real shame for them. But not all the skaters are old enough and mature enough. You know, I've been through the... in the sport i've come out the other side those youngsters aren't in a place to be able to take that on and be okay with the abuse that they're given 
and that's when you get issues you know and we talked about off off the podcast before we went on air if you like we talked about Caitlin Hawaii and, and what she spoke about and I'm just really grateful to her for speaking up and and yeah not all the athletes mm-hmm. are in the right place these are young people and they need to be looked after and promoted yeah agreed continuing on about Caitlin I'm hoping that some of the younger athletes will see her message and and yeah. understand what she's saying so that if they're approached in the same way by a fan, it won't hurt them as deeply as what it could have if they didn't realize that it's not okay, I guess, is the way. We, we spoke about it, didn't we? And, uh, you know, I am comfortable enough to admit that I had disordered eating. I suffered from an eating disorder based on a comment from somebody else. That is not uncommon, though. I don't say that for support or, or any love sent my way. I, I say it because that is the nature of this beast sometimes i spoke about some of the darker aspects mm-hmm. my world is skating my friends are skaters that's not uncommon um and that's not right and what caitlin so beautifully and eloquently not beautifully but eloquently articulated is a, a talking point that isn't raised often and i just had nothing but respect for the way in which she spoke about that and, and raised it and it, it, it really made me think for a lot of time because, you know, Caitlin and I, as ice dancers, are in a subjective uh, sport that is visually based and, you know, size is scrutinized and is also often. And um, yeah, I could talk about it for hours, but well done to Caitlin for speaking up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So let's move on to something that's a little less um... intense. Intense. Um, let's talk about as an ice dancer. I mean, when you were competing, Mark, there was a compulsory dance, there was an original mm-hmm. dance, there was a free dance. Then we've had all these shifts um to create a rhythm dance, and and now we have a rhythm and a free dance. There was something else in there too. We had a short dance at one time too. What do you think about the rhythm dance patterns being removed from the senior? <laughs> competition well, it was interesting because in, re- dance. in uh, my research for this event and some of the other events I've seen skaters be vocal about it and I applaud them for their bravery I think I read a quote by Paul Poirier um, who was vocal about it because when I was competing you're forever kind of scared of the establishment and scared to say anything against the powers that be for fear that that will have a negative impact upon your scores and now <laughs> because I am on occasion, the voice of the International Skating Union, I'm not quite sure how much my own personal opinion should be voiced. What I would say uh, is to probably echo a little bit of what I heard from Piper Gillis. I think, I, I, I love the choreo character step sequence. They're so much fun. And, you know, in the free dances as well as in the rhythm dances, that's often the point in time when people will applaud most, when people will be moved most because they offer the opportunity for more of the uh, emotion to be delivered. What I will also say, and I said this, I can't remember who I was talking to. I'm sure I said it in some podcast somewhere recently, but I (laughs) teach a lady called Maureen Shepherd. Maureen is 80. And uh, when I'm in the rink in Sheffield on Thursday morning, she has a lesson with me. And we will do the Argentine Tango. We will do the Viennese Waltz. We will do the Westminster on occasion. We'll have a little poodle at the rumba. 
and I, Maureen often laments the fact that there are no longer dance socials, which were such a huge part of British ice dancing, where the music would go on and tens of different skaters would partner up and skate around the rink. And she said that was a part of public sessions. And that's why everybody learned to do the 14 step and the blues and the Harris Tango or the International Tango and the, you know, the dances that we know. And whenever I come to the lesson, you know, with Maureen on a Thursday, I'll have been, you know, maybe choreographing a senior long free skate and I'll have been working on double axle technique with somebody else and working on level four twizzles with somebody else. And I come to Maureen and she and I get together and we do it slow, but we'll go through our little Argentine tango. And I'm, I always love doing that with her. And so then with that in mind, it does make me sad thinking there aren't many people like Maureen who know all these dances and the dance is becoming somewhat more obsolete is a little sad in that regard. When I think of it in that context, it is sad. Um, so that makes me sad. That said, I do applaud the Einstein's Technical Committee for consciously thinking of ways to push the sport. Again, much like we say the skaters don't go out there wanting to make a bad job, the Einstein's Technical Committee and ISU, we're doing, everybody's doing their best to try to create the sport as a, as a more popular sport. And I think from a spectator's perspective, a non-skater, you know, like we are hardcore ice dance fans, we know the steps of these dances. For a non-skater, watching the likes, I mean, it's, I referenced the free dance because I've just seen it, but the Lady Gaga free dance uh, <laughs> character step, I mean, it's different for the rhythm dance, but you know, that kind of vibe, that's yeah. memorable, that's yeah. audience friendly, that's get up and clap and feel something. Whereas, you know, Yankee Polka, it's a little bit harder with the Yankee Polka to move you emotionally. <laughs> that's true. As someone who, my background isn't in ice dancing, you know, I skate singles, um, recreational. Um, I always was trying to find the pattern in a rhythm dance. And that's what I always really liked was, okay, can I pick out the Argentine tango? Can I pick out the, you know, um, thin step? And trying to find those things because everyone was doing the same thing. And now everyone is doing different things you're not having that one thing that everybody is doing and I feel like it makes it a little harder to judge now where you could compare how someone did this pattern and someone did that you know that same pattern yeah so I think that judging is hard now with it at least in my opinion yeah and I mean like when I was watching I think it was maybe the the juniors and a or like it's, I remember seeing Hannah Lynn and Yi Kwan and being like, oh my God, that was amazing. And then you see Mrazkova and Mrazek, you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. And then like Becker and Hernandez, oh, that's fantastic. And it's like, gosh, how do you separate? Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And you know, with the Ice Academy of Montreal producing so many incredible skaters, it's, you know, it's, it, it must be hard to judge. It, it really must be. Which brings me to a point about the program component scores, but I might not open that kind of worms. I'll leave it to you for the next question. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh let's open that can of worms mark if you want to talk about it well i think it's i i really agree with the change in the criteria there were 27 criterias and the five components and i remember um remember when i stopped competing and i was sad my career competitively was filled with some political nonsense and 
it was too costly to continue. So it was sad leaving, feeling like there's no point continuing. And I thought, well, I still want to be in the mix for, you know, these exciting events at IC Championships. So I'm going to try and do choreography and I'm going to you know, try and work with, with skaters and do their choreography and still be involved with high level skaters. And in doing that and being in the UK, I realized I can make up maybe really kind of interesting or cool or quirky programs or musical. But at that time, if your skating skills were a five and your choreography was epic, you were a 5.5 at best. And I remember vividly going through world championship results of the ice dancers and looking down the first column and then cross-checking every other one of the four other components and saying, yeah, they don't deviate more than half a point. And so this criteria, putting skating skills last, um, diminishing the number to hopefully allow the judges more confidence to move. The lack of the... Um, the OAC, the Officials Assessment Commission this year to allow the judges to go outside the corridor more. I think it was a great thing. My sadness is that I'm looking at scores where they're the same. Like you get, if I, you know, I've been looking at my phone all day for results, the stat checking, but if I now go to where, oh, I've probably moved on to France, but if I were to, to pick an event to the ice dance competition let's see if i go free dance now piper gillis pop party comp composition 9.33 presentation 0 0.09 higher at 9.42 and skating skills 9.33 if i go to last place the israeli team who i enjoyed mishmash 6.5 composition 6.33 presentation 6.29 skating skills so point, you know, two tenths of a point different between the three components. I don't think that's so you, representing what the hope was. So you were hoping that it would give the judges more freedom to make different gradings and it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I mean, casting my eye there on the scores from Skate Canada, Again, the, the difference between the three components for all of the skaters is within half a point. And so to me, how can then, if you're looking at that criteria, how can they be so equal in their composition, their presentation, and their skating skills? I don't, like, they're all brilliant. Don't get me wrong. They were all freaking brilliant. But if we really scrutinize that new criteria, I'm pretty sure that there'll be somebody in there with presentation that was significantly better in their skating skills. Maybe not so much in the ice dances and the singles. Like Rika Kahira. She didn't have the technical content. She had the best presentation component of the event, but I don't know. I just think I understand why judges will not deviate and go crazy because then they won't get to go and officiate at these events in the future. But I just think I, I would have loved to see a little bit more variability, which would have then pushed the teams the of coaches and choreographers to really be bold in the composition and to be really ramming home the need to make better presentation whereas now i still feel you know what if you've got the skating skill you know you can watch a, a practice you know who's going to be best within the first few laps of the rink you get a sense for who's the best skater and that still is going to define a result now whereas if somebody had got amazing choreography like on the junior grand prix the two danish uh, skaters Flora Calmer Jepsen, I think that was her name. She was in the singles. And then Babeth Hansen Ostergaard, two Danish skaters. Babeth was much better in Cruciverl than in her second assignment, but they both had 
freaking epic short programs. The composition and construction, bloody brilliant. Okay. They should have been like two, three points higher than their skating skills. It didn't happen. I understand why that doesn't happen. I understand it. I just wish that it would. It, it could be possible. And it's not something, you know, it's something I'm reluctant to mention on air because, you know, I'm, I'm speaking a little bit, I'm a little bit like the voice for the sport, but um, yeah. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> well, um, the last thing we want to talk about before we let you go, we appreciate so much you taking the time yes. to talk to us. <laughs> Considering you have such a busy schedule and I know, I know this is starting tomorrow. Tell us about Dancing on Ice. How did you get into that? Well, and what um, does it mean to you to be coming back for your 10th season? I mean. I'm old. Well, it's funny, actually, because uh, a couple of things I've got to reference. The reason I got into Dancing on Ice was because my partner and I competed at the World Championships in 2010. We'd had some really rough stuff crack off in British ice dance. Um, and we considered continuing uh and we looked we went to the dancing and ice tour which was in sheffield in the arena that we can't use for the grand prix because it's already booked but um christopher dean was there and we, we approached him with our coach jimmy young to see if he would choreograph for us for the next season and watching the tour i don't know quite what happened exactly i decided that i couldn't afford another season and didn't want to put myself through it and then having had that experience of seeing the tour i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna apply to that and then that was that, really. Um, and obviously the connection with Torvald Dean, who started the sport with me and now, you know, I'm friends with is, is kind of um, pivotal. Uh, but comically, in regards to my 10th series starting tomorrow, Olivia Smart is obviously a part of the professional skater cast. And the pros on the show, we obviously skate with a celebrity and we, we train up a, a complete novice to try and perform. Uh, but at the top of the show or during the show sometimes there are professional skating sections and I am partnered this year with Olivia and so Olivia is my pro partner now when I first joined the show it would have been 2010-2011 my pro partner at that time was a lady called Maria Filipov who herself was a former European World Championship competitor and Maria who's one of my favorite humans on the planet I think she's 12 years older than me and I remember when I joined I was like all like stretching and warming up and feeling all Olympic. And she'd be like, just calm down, love. You just, you know, it's just a show with celebs, like just chill out, it's all good. And now <laughs> I'm in my 10th year of the show at 37 years old, skating with a 25 year old who's 12 years younger than me. And I'm actually, I'm not gonna say to her to calm down. I'm just gonna hope that I can stay up with her. <laughs> <I'm scared. laughs> Who is your celebrity? I cannot reveal that at this stage. Oh, I haven't actually met them. No. Oh, okay. So I'll find out for definite on, on Tuesday. We the pros, um, the celebs are revealed to the general public, and we the pros are given a location that we have to move to to um for the training period to be near the select where they live so based on that all of the pros you know we do a little bit of a google search and we pretty much figure out i know who i'm likely to be with but we don't get told officially till tuesday and then i will okay. meet said celeb on wednesday 
And that how is, is it working awesome. on like a show like that? Like, you know, it's because it, you're doing it for TV. And how is, you know, how does that kind of work? And is it, is it a little more stressful than just like competing in a competition? Or is it just fun? I, you know, I just was kind of curious what it's like doing it for television. I think, um, you know, I, I had, well, I don't want to keep referencing on it, about it. I sound like a boring, broken record, but my competitive experiences weren't happy. But then Dancing and Eyes came along and just gave me such fun and such joy. And it is just an absolute privilege to be in that world of TV and we're treated so beautifully by who are now my friends, the hair team, the makeup team, the, the production team, the you know, the execs of the show it's it's a little family and you know it's competition but it's not really a competition you know it's just a little bit of light-hearted entertainment in a world that is so fraught with craziness at the minute um it's stressful the turnaround is really ridiculous each week you have to try and teach somebody who doesn't have a clue what they're doing really on the ice to perform a different kind of style um but it, it's just it's fun it's just really good fun I mean, I like I get nervous now thinking about it. Like I've done so many of these now, and I still think, oh my god, <gasps> I've got to go out on national television in front of millions of people and try and make somebody look like they know what they're doing. But you know, pressure is a privilege. Yeah, I wish I was able to see it. You know, because I it's only you know in Great Britain and we don't get it here in the states, and so I wish I was able to watch it because it just sounds like it would be a lot of fun. I know we have. Canada's done Battle of the Blades, which is a similar thing. And I think there's been some seasons um, of like a sort of the similar thing here in the States, but it hasn't been successful. And I, I mean, this has been going on for, you know, you're on your 10th season. So it's been quite some time that uh, Dancing on Ice has been happening. I wish others got to see it outside of, you know, Great Britain. And, uh, check, um, you can check it. I just posted today a montage of some of the pieces that I did last year with, oh, with okay. Pussycat Doll, Kimberly Wyatt, and she's an amazing dancer. And yeah, like nine performances, nine totally different characters with somebody who's been skating for three months. Um, it's cool. It's fun. Okay. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Well, Mark, we're so grateful that you had the time to be able to talk <laughs> with us. Really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you so much for all that you do as well. Thank you for, for all the work that you're doing. And I think we're all on the same wavelength. We're here just to promote the sport and good vibes only. Right, exactly. All right, Gina, can you let folks know where they can find us? Yes, you can find us on our website. It's thisweekinskating.com. And on social media, Twitter, it's at thiswkinskating. And Facebook and Instagram, it's thisweekinskating. And we love your feedback or your questions. If you've got a question for Mark that you would like us to pass along to him, you can reach out to us on social media or you can email us at thisweekinskating at gmail.com. All right. And with that, we've reached the end of our podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Daphne. And I'm Gina. And you've been listening to this special episode of This Week in Skating. Have a great week! <laughs>